I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. Hi, welcome to today's episode of the Canary Group. I am way too excited for this one. I am jumping out of my seat. I geeked out hardcore on this. Michael, what are we going to be talking about? Today, we're going to be talking about conspiracies. Woohoo! Yeah, uh, we are getting into conspiracy theories. This is an area that is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, I am. I am a social scientist by training, and a lot of my previous work has looked at basically social control, power dynamics, stigma, and persuasion. And so this falls very close to home as far as my interests. Uh, So this may have to be a two-parter. I don't know. But I went off the nerd deep end on this one. Well, as a caveat, I mean, we're, we're going to be talking, I think, about more like the psychological and social reasons of, of these things, but also we're going to be addressing some of some particular kind of conspiracy theories, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say, and we've got you covered if this is what you're interested in, because we've got some great shows coming up. When looking at the motives of conspiracy theories, there's there's a couple that we're not going to address right now. One of those is conspiracy for profit. So if you look at an Alex Jones who makes his living by peddling conspiracy theories, that's not what we're talking about today. There's a very clear motive for doing that. Financial gain, less interesting. Uh, The other that we're not going to be talking about today is foreign relations tactics, which would be disinformation campaigns. That we will most certainly be addressing later in in our season, but uh, not right now. Because that that has its own sort of, I would say, scholarship, its own methodology, its own motives. Um, what we're talking about today are conspiracy theories, which are, uh, you know, if we're going to go with a sort of academic definition, they are attempts to explain the ultimate causes of significant social and political events and circumstances with claims of secret plots by two or more powerful actors. Uh, so this is really, you know, what they're not telling you is that it's actually this driving this for this effect. So, Michael, just to kick things off, what is your favorite conspiracy theory? One of my favorite, uh, and I have a friend who is a fellow analyst, and uh, our favorite conspiracy theories were UFOs. Mm, good, good, or, or a classic. Or they're calling them something else now, right? They're calling them... Uh, they're not calling them UFOs anymore. What are they calling right. them? It was like UFA or UFI. Yeah, or UP something or other. I'll have to yeah. check that out. But which I think is they're trying to destigmatize. They're they're always trying to destigmatize things, right? So uh, I'm so sure it's politically would... correct. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but <laughs> anyhow, talking about, yeah. But things in the sky that we can't explain. We'll call yeah. it that. I have to say I am a big, big JFK girl. 
We can go JFK if you want. I love JFK. I, then we, can I, go, we have to go back to the aliens later. Though. Yeah. No, we can we can hit on all of them. But I think especially some of our previous episodes, you know, things we've talked about, uh, we really have come to a place in our sort of global culture where there's increased polarization, increased disagreement, power dynamics have gotten more stark uh, and more defined. And this makes for a fantastic breeding ground for conspiracy theories. With the with the JFK assassination, as time goes on, it probably loses some of its power, you know, with, with subsequent generations. But it doesn't, I think, decrease the speculation of what happened. And is there anything in particular that you'd like to raise about this? One thing we were talking about before the show started was I was so taken aback in reviewing the literature, uh, the sort of sociological and psychological literature of this, uh, of conspiracy theories, is that this is a primal, primal sort of pattern of behavior that humans engage with. If you look at most sociological phenomena, it is very culture specific. So it is really focused on, you know, in Western culture or in more collectivist cultures or in unindustrialized cultures. This phenomena holds true globally. The patterns that we see, the drivers, the outcomes are universal. Uh, They transcend culture, which to me speaks to just how innate this is as far as being a social mechanism in a way, I think we could think about it as you know, normalize it as a, as a way to understand, you know, almost as a symptom of our culture rather than some sort of freak offspurt. I actually have a point that I would actually ask to raise about that and to say that you're saying it's something that's more primal. And I don't mean to make light, but, you know, is this saying that, you know, after the murder of Julius Caesar, are you thinking that there were conspiracy theories that were running through Rome? You know, saying, you know, Brutus 100%. was just a patsy. And it was actually, yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Brutus was just a patsy and he was actually under the controlled interest of X, Y, and Z. There was so. a third gunman, definitely. <laughs> a, a, thir- a third knifeman, right. Yeah, right. there was, was a third knifeman. Right. This is so core to who we are as a culture, um, as a global culture that I don't think there will ever be a time where there aren't conspiracy theories. And so that gets back to, you know, what are some of the other really core components of society? It is power and power struggle. It is social control. Uh, It is leveraging in-groups and out-groups. And, you know, stigma is one way that you can really uh, manipulate an out-group to get in line is by stigmatizing them and sort of distancing them, the group from the resources of the in-group that puts a pressure on them. But then another one is through conspiracy theories. And so there are conditions where we find conspiracy theories really thrive. So some of those, uh, and I think the most obvious one is when there is uncertainty So when there aren't clear explanations, when there isn't transparency, that's when you find conspiracy theories really, really just flourishing. So there's also when there is a strong in-group and out-group or an elite class and a disenfranchised group, 
the more distance between those two, so the more things are have and have nots, conspiracy theories thrive. When you have, and this this certainly speaks to where the U.S. is right now, when you have two groups, when it is clearly one group having power over another group, uh, that's another sort of environmental factor where conspiracy theories can thrive. Uh, so if you look at a European system of government with multiple parties, it's a little bit harder. The environment isn't quite as ideal for conspiracy theories because there's alternative belief structures. When you only have two parties, that's great. You've got your your party that's in power and your party that's out of power. And what we see is depending on which party is in power, and let's go with the Republicans and the Democrats because that's basically what we're talking about here. When there are Democrats in power, the conspiracy theories within the Republicans about the Democrats thrive. That's when they flourish. So that is when, you know, the 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 Democrats are in power, they are powerful. That's when you'll see lots of conspiracy theories about them. When the tables turn and the Republicans are in power, that's when you see the conspiracy theories really flourish about the Republicans. It doesn't mean that the others aren't there, but you see them coalesce more. And I think that is something that that we've seen borne out in the very recent past. In the case, though, of, of the Kennedy assassination, what is it that's sort of driving this sort of mistrust or this belief that you know we're not being told the whole truth? So there wasn't a clear... I mean, everyone points out like the Warren Commission, no one's being straight about what really happened. There was a lot of secrecy about, you know, oh, things went missing or, you know, people weren't where they were supposed to be or why wasn't there, you know, a hood on the car? (laughs) All of these things that there wasn't that clear answer. At the time, there were, you know, there were issues with communism. There were issues with Cuba and Russia. Uh, there were issues with the mob. There were a number of sort of less forthright bad actors sort of circling the waters. Uh, so there wasn't that clear, oh, this guy obviously did this because he was associated with this group. The fact that Oswald was that patsy figure who had these loose affiliations and a very unclear past, that is, you know, that's not a clear enemy. That's a very squishy, vague enemy, and you don't quite get what his motives are. It doesn't make sense. And you look at how the political party was really swelling behind not just the Democrats, but the Kennedys specifically. That also would suggest a great environment for conspiracy theories to thrive. So I think looking across a number of examples, you know, the Kennedy assassination is certainly one of them, but we can look across UFOs. There's a distinct well, up until this week, lack of communication from authoritative sources about, you know, the existence of UFOs. There's Area 51, and there's a lot of sort of hush-hush chatter about, you know, do we have aliens? There's also the role, and we'll get to this, of the media in creating the the right kind of culture to foster conspiracy theories. There was a lot of research done on the movie JFK, which was... You know, basically, it, it was a conspiracy theory put to film. Loved it, don't get me wrong. But Oliver Stone made this case that it was kind of the Russians, but the mob. And there was at least a second gunman, if not a third one. And, you know, 
super fun movie. But if you looked, there was a study done where you looked at people who were polled before seeing the movie and people who were polled after seeing the movie. So just exposure to this one piece of media. The people who were were evaluated after exposure to this conspiracy theory were far more likely to believe in conspiracy theories in general in the in the existence and application of a conspiracy for the Kennedy assassination after seeing the movie. So just having that exposure to this compelling piece of art was enough to get people feeling more open to the possibility of conspiracy theories. So our culture supports this. You know, if you look at anything from you know, Independence Day to alien art that we create can also make people feel more open to believing in conspiracy theories. Public, uh, a public assassination of a figure, and we had talked about Julius Caesar, but I mean, there's also Franz Ferdinand and other things. Uh, in those cases, there's very little doubt of who the conspirators were, there's no, there's very little doubt about you know what the conspiracy was that led to their murder. And by the way, uh, the word conspiracy does not necessarily mean that somebody's wrong. Right. It just means a secret plot. Yes. With two or more actors, so it's not true or untrue. I mean, we have criminal conspiracies all the time. That's what the RICO Act is for, right? But in this case, uh, you know, we're talking about aliens. You're absolutely right that we use art. Um, tends to, I think, to push narratives for dramatic purposes, mm-hmm. but people uh, will confuse that for being fact. Yes. Uh, and JFK is one hand, and then we have plenty of other alien movies on the other, or television shows. Um, don't get me wrong, I mean, love Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a great movie, by the way, when it talks about uh, setting up conspiracies, right? I mean, that whole movie is about conspiracies, but you're seeing it from all these different angles, and it's that's wonderful. But the idea too, like the X Files, you know, that there's this grand cabal mm-hmm. of conspiracies, uh, and we've always been driven by those types of things. And not to get too far off the track, but I mean, if you look at certain conspiracies that have that have transcended probably centuries, and if you were to look at something, I would say something along the lines of maybe. Uh, anti-Semitic conspiracies in Europe. In, yes, um, yes. Which ties into fears of the other, right? Or, uh, you know, these things you know, have great staying power and you know, people mm-hmm. believe into it, like the Protocols of Zion and other things like that and and, and beliefs of what, you know, Jews did to uh, to virgins and, and children and all these things that were, that have been perpetrated and, and, and passed along through literally centuries if maybe not a millennia. Why... Is it that we are so fascinated by these things, or what is it that you know? What what is the purpose in our psyche that, to want to believe in these things? Well, there's a lot of them. Um, <laughs> so they're usually bucketed into three different groups. There's the epistemic, which is sort of the desire for understanding and accuracy and that subjective certainty. Uh, there's existential motives, which are more about control and security, and there's social motives. So maintaining a positive image for yourself or for your group, maintaining social control, those are three giant buckets. So why don't we, if it's okay with you, talk about them sort of in those groupings. So looking at a desire for understanding for subjective certainty, I think one of the one of the things that I found very interesting was this idea of a mono uh, sorry a monological belief system. So 
where groups or individuals have beliefs that sort of create these self-sealing and expanding networks of ideas that mutually support each other. So you believe one conspiracy theory and you're in a social group that believes in the same conspiracy theory, it makes it easier and easier for that sort of closed group to include additional conspiracy theories that all create one broader sort of ideology. Uh, So if you look at QAnon, that's a fantastic example of how one theory breeds another, breeds another in this closed group. And it doesn't necessarily mean it becomes commonplace to believe this. It means you're you're in an in-group that knows the truth. So as we said, there's, you know, conditions of uncertainty. There's also been quite a bit of research that found that um, conspiracy belief is stronger in people who perceive patterns and randomness. So people who want to find that order in the world. So folks who are like seeking those patterns, seeking meaning in their environment. So rather than just some sort of natural phenomena, it's paranormal activity. That makes more sense from sort of an internal narrative perspective. What would be an example of that? So I think the belief in in UFOs, it's not that there's some weird blip in the sky that could have a scientific explanation. It's that it makes more sense that it is another entity. And so trying to not see random occurrences, or rather seeing random occurrences as fitting into a narrative that makes sense, that it's not just random, that it's part of this whole thing. Does that make sense? So there are extraterrestrials out there that makes more sense than just some weird fluke of a light in the sky oh absolutely it absolutely makes sense and i think that but one of the keys too is that you know it goes back to talking about things like uh project blue book where the vast majority of the things could be explained but there was always some phenomenon that couldn't be explained yes and yeah we've put such a stigma about the idea of what an unidentified flying object is is that we've now attached so much I think uh, so much baggage to it. You just immediately think that something. If someone says UFO, you immediately think of a of a, a flying saucer and grays or green people. Yeah, and even in the name, you just made me realize UFO, unidentified flying object, is actually very consistent and accepting of randomness. It's unidentified. We don't know. But in my head, UFO means little green aliens inside a spaceship, because that's sort of the narrative that's been woven around it. You know, if you look at Oswald and the Kennedy assassination, the idea that this weird dude would do something so random and so catastrophic doesn't jive nearly as well as this vast conspiracy to change our political future. You know, so so trying to find a pattern that makes sense and being very uncomfortable with patterns that with randomness, that things are not rational. So it's to make order, which is a very human impulse. We want to make order and understand the story of things. An idea of a truly random world is kind of terrifying, so you also see it as uh, stronger in people who overestimate their ability to understand complex causal phenomena. So people who think that they're better at seeing patterns than they are. You see it in people who have a greater need for cognitive closure, who like, you know, I, I, it's funny in our house, we have sort of this ongoing conflict between reality is perception 
and subjective versus reality. There's a fact, there's a truth, one truth. Um, and so there's this ongoing tension that there has to be one truth or there can be multiple truths and we can hold them all differently. And so for people who want that fixed solid truth, that empirical fact, they are, they struggle more with randomness. And so they are more likely to embrace a conspiracy narrative. Then where does something like healthy skepticism come into uh, into this? Or the realization that people who are questioning, I think, the narrative or people who are questioning the orthodoxy or questioning what we've called conventional wisdom, you know, where does you know, healthy skepticism come into, into this type of you know, conversation? And I think you and I have both seen it can be a slippery slope. Yeah. I would... I would posit, and this strays a little bit from the literature, but I would I would suggest that a healthy skepticism comes with an open mind, a willingness to continually revise your beliefs with new information, an openness to listening to multiple interpretations. But it is that sort of open mind willingness to change. One of the things that is very consistent in, in conspiracy theories is that closed belief system that is not open to disagreement, is not open to considering contradictory evidence. Um, in fact, it's it's this group polarization that if you present people who strongly believe in a conspiracy theory with contradicting evidence as to why that theory may not be true, they get further polarized. They dig in their heels even more in their belief and they other you for trying to argue against it. I think a healthy skepticism that is a very good thing is the openness to feeling like I really think I've got this figured out. I understand it. Oh, you presented me with other evidence. Huh. I'm going to consider that. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to consider it and, and decide that, no, I was probably right. But you're leaving yourself open to continual learning and to change. There is very little openness to change with conspiracy theorists as a group. It tends to become an orthodox kind of system, right? Yeah. And it is that closed system that does not allow for external information in. Um, it, it creates, it, it sort of labels, ex, you know, information that disagrees with the ideology as threatening, as other, as you know, the the man trying to keep you down in a way. You know, there are certainly people who are more prone to conspiracy theories. There's people who have open minds. And then there are people who are very, very sort of abject to conspiracy theories. They are, they do not want any part of it. They are just as closed off as the people who are believing in conspiracy theories. So the inability to open your mind all it does is create groups that other each other, opening our minds, hearing each other, considering perspectives. That's how you start to break down these walls. And I think, you know, that that is something we could say would be good for our society, just to speak from the U.S. right now, to hear each other more, you know, talk less, listen more, keep an open mind about what would really be good rather than what aligns with my party identification the most. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. You and I were talking about this earlier before we started the show, and we were talking about, I, I, I think I told you, that one of the things that bothers me is the fact that there seems to be a sort of a, a hypocritical quality that, you know, we're quick to, and I'm guilty of it too, but we're all quick to basically to judge somebody who we disagree with 
uh, or to go after something that's not, you know, on the other team. But when our own team does something, the exact same thing, we sort of like shut our mouths and say, well, it's different because mm-hmm. my team is this. Or we, we, we rationalize to ourselves that um, ultimately that, well, my team is doing things for the right reasons, even though it's wrong. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, too, is that we don't we, we make, I think, a lot of self-justifications and rationalizations about what's going on in the world. Um, and we want to believe certain things. So you've said this before. You know, we... If you want to believe that there's aliens, then you're going to see aliens. Now, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that your belief, because there may be aliens, could be extremely well thought out. And you can be looking at it from a very rational, a scientific, uh, even a spiritual sort of uh, way. But it means that you're more open to that idea. And if you don't believe that there is intelligent life or there isn't you know, people visiting the planet, then to you it seems ludicrous and preposterous, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's so much easier to to validate information that agrees with your point of view than to validate information that disagrees with it. You know, I, we were talking a little bit about cognitive dissonance, and it's the idea of when your actions and your beliefs don't align, that creates tension. Well, when the facts don't align with your beliefs, that also creates quite a bit of tension. You know, I think there's also, and when we get to the social motives too, there's certain personality types and traits that are more prone. So narcissism is one that frequently correlates positively with the belief in in conspiracy theories. And it's really about that exaggerated self-view and that need for external validation. Those folks are more inclined to believe a narrative, you know, that, that sort of deifies themselves and vilifies their opponents um you know and it's this sort of black or whiting uh this need to feel unique and that you alone hold the truth that you have some power because you know the real truth those are also very you know strong kind of predictors of someone's openness to conspiracy theories you know it's funny too because I, I feel like a lot of, I mean, this has been a very well-researched topic, and the research is so good. I I just geeked out completely. But there are sort of more mundane components of it. Like, people who feel bored are more likely to <laughs> embrace conspiracy theories. Like, okay, that makes sense. But then there's also these much more sort of, I don't know, it, it's a little bit more complex components. Uh, There was one theory that I I came across, hypersensitive agency detection. So people who have a greater tendency to attribute agency and intentionality where it doesn't exist or is unlikely to exist. So people who are like, you know, it's not that this one's going to hit close to home. It's not that you lost your hammer. It's that somebody stole it. (laughs) Like somebody, that that kind of mentality of something must have been done against me, you know, that that breeds folks who are, are much more inclined to believe conspiracy theories. Uh, we actually, my, my wife and I have a story about that because in our old, we, we rented a small place uh, before we moved into our current house. And there are at least five or six times where we lost something in our home 
and we attribute it to poltergeist. You know, we just said, you know, we, well, I didn't take it, you didn't take it. So, you know, and our daughter at the time was, you know, a toddler or an infant. She couldn't have possibly taken this item, not without developing some sort of super strength. And we're like, well, what the heck happened to this thing? Again, it, it, I mean, it could happen. It's possible. I, I my other, my other theory <laughs> is, is that it just slipped through some sort of interdimensional, you know, wormhole. And it's like now somewhere on Tau Ceti 4, that's where our hammer is, I guess. But but there is that is interesting. I think we're all sort of guilty about that because when you see in the when you're seeing things in the popular press or you see things, uh, I think all sorts of groups attribute malice or uh, you know, use the word agency mm-hmm. that things are behind that without understanding that yes, you know the U.S. government is sometimes capable of doing some incredibly sneaky things, and it is possible that they could be behind certain mm-hmm. things. And I myself have seen it uh, firsthand. But oftentimes, though, we also have to realize that people can be incredibly, not malicious, maybe just incompetent. (laughs) And we don't want to believe sometimes Mm -hmm. that these organizations are as incompetent that they are. But folks, um, a lot of three-letter agencies in the government are very incompetent sometimes, uh, ridiculously so, uh, to the point that you would actually think you'd much rather, rather trust national security to probably the person who runs your local Dairy Queen than who's probably... And that happens yeah. sometimes. You know. And I am a very strong believer in public health. I worked at the CDC in a previous life. That experience led me to the conclusion that there is no way that the government is behind a vaccine conspiracy because, quite honestly, they could not find their way out of a paper bag. There's well, so much Well, that's because the aliens are behind it. That's that, why, so... Yeah. Right. Okay. So that makes yeah. more sense. Well, if you now. watch the okay. X-Files, that's what they were explaining, right? Is it? Yeah, but I, I think the level, you know, humans are not the most rational. We are not terribly logical, and we are in groups, especially in sort of groups that are not meritocracies, not necessarily prone to the smartest and the best winning the day. Very hard to organize a vast conspiracy in those conditions. <laughs> so, Take that for what it is. Well, let's talk, since you're talking about this, and this is an area of expertise you're talking about, let's talk a little bit about vaccines, or we can talk a little bit about, I think we talked a little bit about HIV before this, or mm-hmm. we could or talk about something in the medical field. Yeah, where, because, absolutely. Because there, that, that seems to be, whether you are on the left or the right, or whether you're a centrist, there seems to be a broad swath across many different areas where people have beliefs that, you know, that run into conspiracies about these types of things. Yeah, definitely. So vaccines is a very, you know, it's one that that most everyone is familiar with as far as the anti-vaxxer movement and the belief that there's a number of different conspiracy theories around vaccines that, you know, there's there's one that believes the government is putting trackers into everybody through vaccines. There's another one that it's actually, you know, toxic, that it causes autism and the government is behind this. There's one with the uh, HPV vaccine that it caused infertility with HIV AIDS. And this is something that, you know, is is less present now in Western societies is still a major issue uh, in the countries in Africa is the idea that the the HIV AIDS um, epidemic, the the virus itself was designed to target gays, that it was designed to target uh, minorities, uh, and this was this bioengineered thing. All of that has some major consequences, specifically 
people are not seeking out healthcare. Folks who believe in vaccines are less likely to trust medical sources. They're less likely to use medical services. Um, there was one study that found that people that believe that cell phones are, I don't want to say cell phones don't have radiation. They do. They're, I mean, that's, that's a known fact, but that cell phones are being monitored by the government and they are controlling our brains uh, correlated with a lower use of medical services Vaccine refusal, we've seen a resurgence of measles, of whooping cough, of diseases that were pretty much completely eliminated in the U.S., they're back. Uh, and it's because people are not vaccinating and something like measles has, it requires an extremely high herd immunity to be eliminated and controlled. It's like 99. 8% of the population has to have a vaccine to be able to prevent the spread of measles because it's so contagious. Right. It was actually more contagious than than COVID. That was the one yes. thing. Yeah, so. yeah. And people didn't understand that. Yeah. We've now seen outbreaks of measles. So there's also the, there is a lower likelihood of using condoms and birth control because of uh, conspiracy theories that suggest that, again, this is, it's going to sterilize you or... Um, you know, it's all a plot by the government. And then they're also more likely to choose alternative medical options. So to go with this, the sort of snake oil treatments over tried and tested medical services, because they don't trust those authoritative outlets. So there are very, very serious consequences of these more nefarious conspiracy theories that lead to, you know, everything, including death. Tangentially related to that is science denial. So, you know, with HIV AIDS, that it's actually, you know, a plot by the government. Climate change is another one where we see sort of the denial of, and again, climate change is a whole can of worms that I'm not trying to pry open, but people who believe that it is a conspiracy theory are notably less likely to take actions to support a healthy environment. So whether or not you believe that climate change is a thing, if you're saying you think it's a conspiracy theory, you're not going to take that step to recycle. You're not going to take that step to turn the water off, to, you know, to turn the lights off when you leave a room. Things that are just common sense, good to do. Even from an economic standpoint, like if you're worried about energy scarcity, turn the damn light off when you leave the room. And so it, it directly impacts people's environmental intentions, and that has consequences. So it definitely, you know, the presence of nefarious conspiracy theories play a very strong role in, in people's lives. I would say, uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, uh, but one thing that I would point out to you, though, is that if you've had experience, you know, the old, you know, the old Russian saying, you know, or Ukrainian saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on yep. me. When you saw something like vaccine hesitancy in Japan, that was driven by a mistrust of the government because of mishandling of public health issues you know, the release of HIV tainted blood into the system or yeah. uh, vaccines that had not been properly tested and it, you know, it hurt or killed you know, people. People had turned around and roughly said, and I think you and I had spoken earlier about this too, is that you need, that one of the greatest antidotes to these types of things is, uh, you said it was what, trust and consistency? It's being trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah, trustworthy. 
if you don't be, if you're not trustworthy, then you lose, you forfeit the right, and then that's where I think a lot of this is coming mm-hmm. from. Uh, and Completely. Can maybe, and part of it could also be said too. I mean, not to put uh, too fine a point on it, but in American politics, I would say probably since the from the changes that we're coming uh, instituting from like the late '50s up until now, there has been an eroding of trust in institutions, and so therefore, and of of I think of policy to believe now that I think that people are creating these things and you you talk about them we're creating this to be able to, to make some sense and some order and try mm-hmm. in, in this chaos that's coming but is it possible that this this is just chaos you know we're just you know all of these things are chaos or is there a hint of truth that there may be you know, something to some of these sort of uh, some of these conspiracies I, so that's the thing with conspiracy theories they're not necessarily false Right. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it's not about whether they're true or not. It's about the effect of them. Well, it's like you and I had talked about Kim's convenience and Mr. Kim, you know, saying emphatically, it's not conspiracy theory, it's conspiracy fact. Yes. You know, if you believe it, right? So it doesn't, it does not have to be false. There can be conspiracy theories that are true. And so when we look at some of the the positive effects of conspiracy theories, because there are positive effects, one is that it can bring to light legitimate conspiracies, you know, and that that healthy questioning of powerful agents is a good thing. But I think getting back to your other point about truth is that is, I don't want to say the best weapon we have, but it's the best antidote. When you have transparency and clarity, you don't struggle nearly as much with vicious conspiracy theories. When you come from a place of honesty and of authenticity, you'll find that the the environment is much less rife for conspiracy theories. So you know, at the CDC, one of the main tenants, and this is a quote that is attributable to somebody, but I can't remember who, but it's certainly not mine, I can say that. People need to know that you care before they care what you know. If you are going to go out and throw facts and figures and statistics and get on your high horse about what people should be doing for their health, that is a great way to convince no one to take any steps towards behavior change. Nobody wants to be talked to like that. You have to be a listener You have to make sure that your audiences know that you care about what they think, that they're not just these, you know, wackadoodle radicals, that you understand that there is a reason for their concern or their skepticism. That is a critical component of bringing people to a place of dialogue and of trust. And if you have done things that have eroded trust, then you lose that credibility and you lose the the goodwill of people to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so, you know, like you were saying, the government has done quite a few things, you know, just sticking within the health realm. There's the Tuskegee experiments. There's a very good reason for African-Americans to have a distrust in the American public health system. If you look at the development of the birth control pill, uh, they experimented on Puerto Rican women at a dose that it was 50 to 500 times higher than the current average dose for birth control pills, causing tremendous health consequences. Without their knowledge or consent, there are very good reasons 
for people to mistrust the health system, especially people who are disenfranchised or lack agency. And so, again, you can't really say that these conspiracy theories are just people acting maliciously. It You have to consider the historical context and you have to consider the cultural context of people's very healthy, self-protective skepticism. But it is about coming to the table and it, listening for that and acknowledging that and owning that and having a conversation from a place of respect. But that lack of respect, as we've seen in the political arena, only polarizes people more. Uh, agreed. I think we had talked a little bit earlier, you and I had talked a little bit about, and you had worked on this at the CDC when we had that, uh, that Ebola scare a number of years ago. Um, and the government had sort of taken a kind of a tired, you know, sort of parent sort of way. It's like, you're being silly. This is not a big deal. We've got this under control. Just like, you know, go about your business. And mm -hmm. it didn't address people's legitimate fears. What I sensed was, is that people were saying, I don't feel like you're telling me everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then a year or two later, then we suddenly had, you know, with, uh, with COVID, uh, once again, I think people initially, what I saw with that, uh, looking at from an intelligence point of view, there were people who saw that this was coming, but there was a great deal of complacency. Uh, and, and people didn't want to believe it was going to be as bad as it was. But when it finally no. hit, what I found was psychologically, people, I see, you know, you can go from one extreme and being, oh, it's not a big deal to, oh, my God, it's to the ends of the world, whereas the reality is somewhere sort of more in the middle. Mm -hmm. But if we had been more effective, I think, of communicating to people uh, about these things and had had a more, I think, a more calm conversation about these things from the beginning, it would have been a different sort of end result. Yeah, the CDC has has had quite the reckoning post-COVID. They are doing a full reorg and they have gone through a very rigorous process of assessing what they're not doing well. And so I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt with, as they move forward with, you know, whatever new framework they come with, hopefully they have learned their lessons and applied changes accordingly. But again, with COVID, you saw very low certainty a lot of conflicting information. Part of that is the speed of science is much slower than the news cycles. And so they didn't have the information to give to the public. Secondly, you had a public health epidemic that was being controlled by the executive office. Yeah. They were making decisions about what should happen and what the messaging should be. And then telling the public health agency responsible for our country's safety what that message should be, what the steps should be. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And that not only undercut the CDC's credibility and other public health agencies that are associated with the CDC, like all of your state and local health departments, uh, it also then only eroded more credibility with the White House. You had a White House where the president at first was denying that it was a thing, and then got sick with it, but then seemed to kind of conceal that illness. Like there was so much that wasn't talked about. The idea that from a public health perspective, you want to come out and say, I mean, this is one of like the, the basic core tenets of health communications. You need to like say what you don't know. 
you need to say, we are trying to figure this out. We don't have the answers yet. Here's our plan for getting those answers. You need to be able to say, here are the steps that we believe will keep you safe. And we would recommend taking those steps. You don't tell people what to do. You give them good reasons for why they should do something. So mandates. Mandates don't work very well. You get a lot of people pretending to get vaccinated. I We certainly knew folks who were faking their vaccination cards. That does nothing for protecting public health. All yeah. it does is create people who are not being honest. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic movie about the origins of uh, the HIV epidemic and the band played on. It's based on an even better book. Highly recommend, but it's a beast of a book. So if you're not totally into it, just watch the movie. It's great. But the way they had to track back to patient zero was so much more challenging because of the stigma and people concealing their illness that it took far too long for people to understand how it actually spread through bodily fluids. It led to, as you noted in Japan, it led to uh, the blood donation centers not restricting and not testing their blood for HIV which got a whole nother host of very vulnerable people sick. And it led to people continuing to have sex, knowing they were positive and concealing it. So all of that creates an environment that not only is more dangerous to the public, but it's also a breeding ground for conspiracy theories. Because then when all of this stuff is happening and you've mandated that things are going to be a certain way, you look like you're doing something duplicitous. Agreed. One of the other things, too, that just occurred to me while we were talking about this, though, is that and it goes back to what you had said about there being a primalness to some of this conspiracy theories, is that when we were attributing things, sometimes we would attribute it to divine or we would you know, attribute things to something outside of our control. Uh, and say, you know, this is punishment for this or where, you know, this is happening because we've displeased this. Um, yep. You know, and that's the other the other side, too, is that I, I think that whether or not you are spiritual or you, know, you, may, you may not be religious or spiritual, but you believe in something. Um, and there are some people as much as there are people who believe in conspiracy, you know, the conspiracy theories about climate change. And you mentioned that. But there are other people who believe that, you know, climate change is some sort of, you know, divine retribution for mankind's sins. And, you know, we've, we've damaged the environment. Guy is angry at us. And these God th- is angry and he's sending a hurricane. Right, exactly. Without understanding that, no, you know, you have to look at it in a bigger holistic sort of way of, you know, what's going on with the weather. And there gets to a certain point where, you know, the best of our science and the best of our, of our, of our philosophy, we ultimately come to, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. But we talk in our modern age with a great deal of certainty about what's going on. And we seem to think that we know what's going on things medically. We seem to think we know what things are going on environmentally. We seem to think we know what's going on with the universe when we only live in a very small you know, part and only under, have a very small understanding of what's going on. Uh, I think sometimes we mask our ignorance with this certainty. And that's what mm-hmm. I think brings about on both sides. Uh, there are conspiracy theories about why things happen. And then there are people who have conspiracy theories why these people are believing why this happens. <laughs> absolutely. Sense. Yes. Oh, there's one for the absolutely jar. Oh, I put, I've already put five coins in the, in the jar. Already, so. <laughs> okay, we're rich. Yeah. So, you know, as you were... As you were saying before, we want to make sense of a complex environment. 
And so we, one, come up with reasons for why things happen, whether they are scientific or an act of God, we want the reasons for why it makes us feel safer. And then you look at people who are more prone to believing that their perspective is right. So that's sort of a component within that narcissism bubble of you find this to be more a conspiracy theory belief to be more frequent in people who have a conviction about their own point of view that believe they are right. Likewise, you see it in people who are more prone to spout their beliefs about their perspective and why they're right. So you have the personality types that kind of drive it, but you also have this very human need to make sense of the world around us. And so it really, the conspiracy theory belief kind of blossoms within both the psychological component of the narcissism. It's more common with lower levels of intelligence, with lower education, lower income. It's also more common with folks who are in outgroups. So it's more common in minorities and any kind of oppressed group. And then also it's more common with people who have non-clinical delusional thinking, people who, you know, there's an increased likelihood in people who have a schizotypy diagnosis. It kind of runs the gamut psychologically, but I think there's a very human element here that you don't have to be nuts to, to fall into this because we have that drive to make sense. You know, and I think you're getting at that second category, and I'm thinking this has to be a two-parter episode (laughs) because there's so much to talk about here. The existential motives. So the desire for control and security. People who lack agency and control are able to reclaim a sense of that control by believing in conspiracy theories that explain why they are oppressed or why their group is othered. And I think that points to sort of a secondary really important component, which is people are far more likely to buy into conspiracy theories that provide reasons why their own group is oppressed than they are to buy into conspiracy theories that suggest why another group that they're not in is oppressed. So there's a very personal identification to this. Yes. I'll look at is the Israelis and the Palestinians. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I think that's a great example. And so those, you know, for folks who feel powerless or that existential anxiety are more likely to try to come up with reasons why they have been pushed down and why the other group has been pushed up. You don't see a whole lot of elites, folks on top, who are buying conspiracy theories about why they're on top. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, because I would say that, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're attending a, uh, a top American school, and I would say that a lot of American schools these days uh, are, are pivoted more, let's say, just left of center. And mm-hmm. there is, I think, a tremendous amount of conversation on those campuses that talks about those, those conspiracies or sees those conspiracies as actually systemic fact and saying, you know, this is why people turn to crime. This is why people do this. This is why people do that. This is why this group is not doing as well as other groups. And they may have uh, they may have data to support some of that, but they may also, I think, reject some of the evidence that points to other things. You know, it may not necessarily be a, uh, a grand conspiracy to keep group A out of things. But at, at the same time- But this is, they don't have a lot of conspiracy theories as to why they are in power. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that's true. I would just say though that they maybe they acknowledge them. You know, they're acknowledging the these the theories of, of of what these are the cabals of power that are keeping you know people down. Keeping people down is one thing, but when you're up, oh yeah, <laughs> you're not buying into conspiracy theories about why you're up. Oh, individually, there, to you, right. there's very there's very logical reasons why you're in this group. You know, you're smart, you can afford it. Like these are not conspiracy theories. You can certainly buy into reasons why the oppressed are oppressed. Okay. But yeah. you're not looking, you're not looking, when you are in a position of power, you're not looking for a conspiracy as to how you got there. It's all about the us versus them. And so feelings of alienation from a political system, personal unrest, uh, lack of understanding in the social world, so feeling misunderstood, even just belief that the economy is getting worse is typically tied to a greater uh, likelihood of believing in conspiracy theories. So, you know, some of the reasons are that it can help people regain some of the psychological goods they have lost uh, in terms of specific problems. Like, I, I did not get this because there's this pressure to prevent me from getting it, you know, or I'm I'm not a high-powered, you know, one percenter because there's this whole, you know, conspiracy against me. It can it can serve as a buffer protecting people from the threats to their social system. It can make them feel like there is a reason, even if it works against them, there is a reason why they are disenfranchised, why they lack agency, why they are oppressed. So I think within the control and security bucket, it can be a solve for people who feel like no matter what they do, they can't win. On the other hand, too, and, and by the way, I think that hits close to home. I think that should hit close to home to most of us. Uh, there, yeah. I can. I. I'll only speak for myself personally. Is that I've certainly felt that in times that, especially the less control in my life that I've had, the more that I felt that it has to be because there's a system or something that is obviously conspiring. My wife laughs at me and she says, yes, the world is conspiring against you, Michael. And I'm like, yes, of course it is. I'm not that important. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, is I'm not that important. If there is some grand cabal or agency, it really doesn't care about me individually. Uh, but there is that sort of feeling that things are, you know, we, we don't have control. So therefore we have to attribute something to it. It is because of um, you know, a group or a, uh, a deity or, you know, something that's going on or fate mm -hmm. that's, you know, conspiring against us. But on the other side, I guess I would ask to say, is it possible that the better the things are going for us, the less we are open to conspiracies? Or do you think... Yes. Because uh, I, have a, I have a point to that too, is that if you remove an existential threat and things get better... Isn't it human nature to sort of try to manufacture new threats? Because as human beings, we seem to only do, we only seem to be happy when we do live. And we can't believe that if things are good, like at the end of the Cold War, when we suddenly removed the threat of, in, of, of immediate nuclear war as, a, as a, of an ending of the human race, there was a brief time for a couple of years where people were good with that but then we had to start filling it in and we suddenly became obsessed with the idea of the planet being obliterated by asteroids or meteors and there were a number of movies that came out like armageddon and deep impact and then we said you know what that seems a little far-fetched it's going to be zombies and right now it's i'm amazed that you know the zombie business has been so popular uh, but people are 
I think that there's sort of like this existential dread that people need to have in their in their background. And maybe that might explain also the need for why we, we believe in conspiracy theories, because we want to believe that there are bad things going on and bad agencies. Or am I just being weird? I don't know. Well, I think it's I think it's scale because not everyone believes in conspiracy theories. So we've been talking a lot about the people that do believe in conspiracy theories, but there are quite a few that are more more resistant than others. And so I, I think the need to feel like there's something out of whack, that there's something that is a threat is different. It could be related, but I don't think that that is necessarily... Conspiracy theories are always going to be there, and it's about the groups within a culture that feel somehow oppressed or feel less than or kept down. That doesn't mean that the people who are in the in-group and things are going well don't have their own issues and aren't feeling like there's something out of whack or that they're under threat. It means that that specific conspiracy theory is going to be less resonant with them. So I think we're, you know, most of the research looks at specific conspiracy theories. What you're talking about is something on a societal level that is, I think, much much more transcendent than a specific conspiracy theory. Right. That would be the that would more tie into more. I think that primal, right? You that you were talking about. Yeah. So yeah, I don't disagree with you. I do think we are always looking for that next threat. I think it's economically and politically beneficial that we always have a threat because it drives us towards something socially i feel like we always look at what we don't have or what's not good or what's out of whack we're not focusing on what is good yes you know that all of that i think is true i don't know that that necessarily is helpful in understanding conspiracy theories as much because in any specific topic in any specific group there will always be the haves and the have-nots I can't think of a single event where there wasn't some disenfranchised group. That's where you hear more of the conspiracy theories. You don't hear them on this. It, I think it becomes disinformation if you're hearing it on like a national scale. So when we're talking about conspiracies about like, say, we're, talk, we, we're talking about conspiracies where there, you know, a social or economic reason, you know, haves or have nots. But in the case of, say, aliens, the alien conspiracy theories, which seem to run a very broad gamut, uh, where does that come in? And, and, and do you think that it's only a certain segment of society that believes in those types of things? Or do you think that- I definitely think it's only a certain segment of society that believes in aliens, yes. Okay. There are, I, I know lots of people that do not believe or that think that if there was life, it's inconsequential to us. I think from, you know, and part of this is sort of our cultural narrative and, and media, the stories that we tell. When when it comes to aliens, we are, you. I don't, I can't think of any or many examples of stories about aliens where we were smarter than them or where we were more powerful than them. It's them invading our planet with their advanced technologies and their abilities and somehow against all odds we come back and win or you know we are able to work within their system i think it's interesting that we see ourselves and position ourselves in most of our alien narratives in the out group in the oppressed group in the lesser group that to me is fascinating because if you look at the facts thus far from what we've gathered so far 
Uh, and I don't, this is <laughs> not saying that this is the way it is, just from what we know so far, we're pretty darn advanced compared to the other signs of life that we've been able to see that we know of. Right. Again, I'm sure there's folks, you know, with vast knowledge from Area 51 who can argue against that. I don't know. I am not an alien expert. But it is interesting that we position ourselves as the weaker group in all of our stories about aliens. Or we are under threat. We're not invading their world. They're invading our world. We're having to to fight for life as we know it. It's it's funny because I mean if you look at uh, I'm a big fan of science fiction and I some of my recently some of my favorite science fiction was stuff that was written during the Soviet era and you're thinking you know that just seems incongruous but there are two specific stories and one was by a Polish writer named I think Stanislav Lem and it was uh, the story that became he wrote oh gosh it's just on the tip of my tongue um, but anyways but he wrote a story about you know. Uh, humanity running into an alien intelligence but it being so alien that we could not actually communicate with it uh solaris that it was made into uh, the soviet era movie solaris and their remake later american made remake but that was the story another one was by a pair of brothers in the soviet union who wrote a story about it was a short story called roadside picnic and was later made into a movie again in the soviet time i think it was called it'll come to me it was by andre bandichuk and that story, it was sort of the thing that, you know, we're so insignificant that, you know, someone stops by, if aliens stopped by here and we find the remains of, uh, you know, whatever they left behind, it was mostly like like a roadside picnic. You know, we're like ants crawling over <laughs> the things left by people, you know, and some of it can be helpful and some of it can be dangerous and things like that, but we don't really truly understand. And I thought that that was interesting because the idea is that, you know, we can't understand you know, what is going on with aliens or what would happen there. And I think that's more realistic that, you know, it's not going to follow anything that we can, that we can understand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not necessarily them coming here or them doing certain things, but if we may not have the ability to, to communicate at all. And, but for us, it's easier to kind of put it in terms that they're going to act like us. They're going to do things like us yes. and they're going to communicate with us like this. And they're going to see this as conquer or be conquered. Yes. Yeah, because that's like that's just built into our assumptions. And it could be that they're looking for a symbiotic relationship. Who knows? Right. Or that we're on such vast planes that we are a leaf of grass under their foot or vice versa. So I do think that there's quite a bit to explore and unpack in how we have created the stories around the unknown. Uh, as you know, hopefully we find out more information about aliens to come. I think it's very telling to look at the stories that we have made up so far to see what that says about us. And I think given how much there is to talk about this, I think let's finish up with social motives and then let's come back for a round two. I was just going to say one last thing just to, before we go into that. And so I would say to, to encapsulate what we're saying is that if, if you want to understand yourself better, then look at the conspiracy theories that you entertain and mm -hmm. that might be a lens into the things that are actually that are uh, driving you or causing you sleepless nights or fear, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think f trying to figure out how to come to terms with the unknown and the uncertain, you know, how to take agency and decide what you can do, what is in your power, rather than explaining why you are disadvantaged try to figure out what what you can turn to your advantage 
And I think just to finish the social motives and then we're going to definitely come back for a round two because there's just still tons to talk about. But there is, for those believing in conspiracy theories, there is a greater need to feel positive about the groups that they belong to. So nationalities, political parties, and then there's also a conviction that others conspire against your group. So I think we've seen quite a bit of this in the in the last election, um, the last presidential election, that if you feel like your group is under threat, conspiracy theories that sort of tell that story and that explain why you know a elite group would try to keep your group down, that not only explains where you are, but it adds value. It says they want to keep you down because. And so it creates an increased group identity and conspiracy theories, as we already talked about, flourish in closed networks. So in groups where there's not a lot of connection out of the group, that it's it's a very inclusive and sort of exclusive group too. Then that also, I think there's a very strong relationship that that we can see that groups that have a stronger need for both validation and a stronger propensity for denigrating other groups. So there was, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, there was one theorist that I, I read talking about how there will always be a minority for a minority group, that there is a hierarchy that if you're in one group, you look down on another group, which looks down on another group. There's always a group that is somehow worse or less than or you know a group to be to turn up your nose to because we need that kind of we need something to to bolster our group identity so that is another one that is it makes makes groups prone to belief in conspiracy theories for those who have experienced discrimination they are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories and then also, you know, increased feelings of being undermined and threatened in the context of international relations is another one that correlates highly with belief in conspiracy theories. Uh, it also is um, a mechanism used to justify a group's disadvantaged position. But the social motives are all about sort of how those low status groups explain their status, how high powered groups keep low status groups down. And it, it is all about this power struggle and this social control that works on a psychological level of folks who are more inclined to, to hold certain beliefs. But it's really about the group identity and the reasons for being and the reasons for the state of affairs for a group. So there's a lot going on there. I think next we really want to dig into what that means for our culture, how it's communicated, how, you know, and and also the consequences of it and what can be done. You know, do we try to combat conspiracy theories? Do we accept them? There's a, there's a whole lot more to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, there we go. Once, once again, uh, I would say that one of the big things too, maybe we want to explore too, is the effects of, yes. of, uh, of social media and the modern social media state and how that's helped. Whereas before you might be you might be only moving within your own head or a very small group. Now you can suddenly connect with a much larger group who who agrees with what you're saying or by you know or you can find validation in those things that you're uh, that you're believing. 
and that may also feed upon itself because there is a psychological isn't there a, there's a psychological phenomenon where we, we become more radicalized as we start to mm-hmm. grow with other groups right we tend to feed upon ourselves yeah group polarization so the more right. pressure you put on a group um, to combat their beliefs the more entrenched they become in their beliefs uh, and there's definitely some very interesting research on the impact of social media uh, that I think will definitely surprise you. So I will I will hold that one until next time. But I was that's true. Really we, surprised. We actually have something planned on that. Yeah. yeah. So we will see you on the flip side. Thank you so much for joining us for this, Michael. Thank you for entertaining me while I completely nerded out on the subject. I just find this all so incredibly fascinating. It's very fascinating, and I also think it's very important. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, I mean, if someone sees conspiracy theory in the title of this podcast, I think immediately they're either going to click on it because they believe in conspiracy theories, or they may not click on it because they're going to say to themselves, why the heck do I listen to people talk about conspiracy theories? Yep. <laughs> so. Well, hopefully we all learned something. I know I learned a ton in doing the research for this. So. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Really, really fun stuff. And we will see you next time for even more. Thanks for joining us. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.